Welcome to the Canon Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Tim Emmett, the lead pastor at Canon, and I hope that this message will help you take your next step with Jesus as he leads us from death to life, from sorrow to joy, from the world as it is to the world as it will be. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks to, and with the help of our uh, preschool teachers, we are spending the month of November, uh, because of Thanksgiving, uh, turning our hearts, our minds, and our lives toward gratitude. And we're going to do that looking at gratitude through the lens of the the general rules, uh, do no harm, do good, keep close to God. You know, if you think about it, because of Thanksgiving, most of us sort of automatically turn our hearts, our minds, our lives toward toward Thanksgiving. We want to spend some time in November giving thanks. We want to spend being especially intentional about spending some time just being grateful. Many of us take a, make a point of counting our blessings in the month of November. We do that, of course, uh, as followers of Jesus, because gratitude is our response to God's grace, but also because we know that there is a connection between gratitude and joy, and we very often get the relationship turned around. It's not so much the case that those who are joyful are, are grateful as it is that those who are grateful are joyful. In his book, uh, The Happiness Advantage, Sean Aker, a psychologist who teaches at Harvard, writes that we can train our brains to become more grateful by setting aside just five minutes uh, a day for practicing gratitude. Five minutes a day, we can practice gratitude and train our brains to be grateful. He cites a study, a one-week-long study. Think about this for a moment, just one week long, in which people were asked to take five minutes a day uh, at the same time every day and to write down three things they were thankful for. They didn't have to be big things. They didn't have to be grand things, but they had to be concrete and specific. Things like, I'm grateful for the delicious Thai takeout dinner I had last night or I'm thankful that my daughter gave me a hug, or I'm thankful that my boss gave me a compliment at work. The participants simply expressed thanks for three specific things at the same time every day for one week. The researchers checked back with the test subjects uh, after a month, and they found that those who practiced gratitude, including those who had stopped at the end of the one week, were happier and less depressed. They checked back in three months and found that the participants who had been part of that one-week experiment were still more joyful and content. They checked back after six months and found that they were still happier, less anxious, and less depressed than they had been. The researchers hypothesized that the simple practice of writing down three thanksgivings a day over the course of a week primed their minds to search for the good, to look for the good in their everyday lives. It opened their eyes and their hearts to the blessings all around. As a church, we want to give thanks. We want to be grateful in part because there is this connection between gratitude and joy, but also because, especially because, uh, gratitude is how we give thanks to God. As followers of Jesus, gratitude for us is not offered to the universe in general, but rather to God. It is personal and relational. It is how we respond to God's grace, God's free favor in creation and redemption. You and I and everyone we know has been made in the image of a God who is love, 
a God who loves us so much that he sent Jesus into the world and onto the cross so that we may live, so that we may flourish together with him. Gratitude is how we give thanks to God, how we respond to this amazing, unconditional, free favor of God. We want to give thanks. We want to be grateful. And so toward that end, as I've already said, we are looking at gratitude through the lens of the general rules. As some of you know, the general rules actually do go back to John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. He created them or maybe really just kind of wrote them down in 1743. He, he gave them to the Methodists, which at that time, uh, they were not a church. They were a movement for renewal in the Church of England and throughout the British Isles. He gave them as guidelines to help them walk in faith, hope, and love. The Bible has a lot of instructions, a lot of guidelines. We just heard a lengthy passage uh, read by Rick from the, from the letter of Ephesians. And so Wesley, to sort of help them in their journey, to help them walk concretely and personally with Jesus, he gave them these three simple rules, do no harm, do good, and then Wesley wrote, attend upon all the ordinances of God, which really means keep close to God through such you know, disciplines and practices as corporate worship, personal and corporate prayer, receiving communion, studying the scriptures, hearing the word read and proclaim, fasting, serving others. In these ways, through these disciplines, through these habits and practices, we open our hearts and our lives to God. We keep close to the God who is drawn near to us. This morning, of course, we want to focus on do no harm. When I was in uh, seminary at Duke Divinity School, I, I lived for most of my years there uh, a, a couple blocks from Ninth Street, which is a sort of classic college street. You might imagine uh, most colleges have a street like this somewhere near them. It's got restaurants that are good but affordable for poor students, uh, coffee houses, a grocery store, kind of like Whole Foods, you know. And so we would walk there frequently. I'll never forget the day when my housemate JD came home and said that he noticed a sign in the window of the Chinese restaurant on Ninth Street. It, there was a big sign in big bold letters proclaiming grand reopening and in equally bold letters, less asbestos. <laughs> Let that sink in for a minute. So as most of you know, asbestos causes cancer right? And it used to be used quite frequently in insulation, and there are all sorts of regulations under which conditions you may and may not use it in this time. And so clearly they had an asbestos problem, and so they shut down to take care of their asbestos problem. And uh, we both kind of were puzzled by that sign, less asbestos. I'm guessing they meant without asbestos. We've subtracted the asbestos. But of course, to English native English speakers, it came across like there's still some. We haven't eliminated all of it, but look, we've given it our best effort. There's less than there was. It's less risky to work here, less risky to, to dine here. Come on, have a dinner. There's less asbestos. You notice that Wesley's first general rule is not do less harm. He doesn't say, hey, look, you know, uh, do the best you can. Like, you know, nobody can be good all the time, and boys will be boys, 
Um, just do less harm. The actual language of the general rule is doing no harm, avoiding evil of every kind. I mean, it's quite absolute. And so Wesley is pointing to a dramatic change in our lives that happens when we come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, when we are forgiven by God, reconciled to God through Jesus, when we are filled with His Spirit, it leads and should lead and always does lead, both sort of initially and immediately, but then gradually, increasingly over time. There is a before and after, and he speaks of that in this passage. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, as you walked. You can't live as you did because you're not who you were. There's a dramatic contrast between life outside of Christ, apart from Christ, before Christ, and life in and with and through Christ. And doing no harm is a great and a very faithful summary of some of the teaching we find in Paul's letters, but also in the Gospels, coming right out of the lips of Jesus. Doing no harm automatically turns us toward each other and others. Our new and renewed relationship with God immediately and dramatically impacts our relationships with one another. And so in this passage alone from Ephesians, Paul says that there should be no lies, no grudges, no stealing, no bitterness or wrath or anger or wrangling or slander or malice, no fornication, impurity or greed, no obscene, silly or vulgar talk. Entirely out of place. He doesn't say, do these things less. He says instead, don't do them at all. And I think it's helpful to observe not only that, that, that John Wesley didn't say, and Paul doesn't say, do less harm, but also to observe that Paul did not say, and John Wesley didn't say, have no fun. Because that's how Paul has been heard. That's how Paul has been heard. That's how the New Testament very often has been heard. There is a sort of hyper-spiritualized, puritanical version of the faith that sort of pits the body against the spirit, heaven against the earth, and anything normal, anything natural, anything material is suspicious at best, if not outright evil. Some of you have heard me say before that Puritanism has been described as the sneaking suspicion that somewhere someone is having fun. And the faith has been understood in those ways, that the spiritual is superior to the material, uh, and so whatever in us is earthly, and that just means normal and natural and bodily, our appetites for food, for music, for beauty, are suspicious at best, corrupting, unreliable. We should really only do religious things, spiritual things. Never mind the fact that in the Old Testament, one of the tithes, there were three tithes, one of the tithes every year was for a ginormous feast in the temple in Jerusalem. Put away a tenth of everything all year long and then gather for this great feast in the presence of God and buy whatever food and whatever drink your heart desires and share not only with your family and your friends, but anyone and everyone who comes to the feast. This is a celebration of the goodness of God in the things that he has made. 
It's hard to celebrate that kind of feast in the presence of God and walk away thinking, we just did something really evil. We had too much fun. Likewise, it's hard to remember that every event in our redemption, every significant event, every main turning point in our salvation involves a body, the incarnation of the Word, the incarnation of the Son, His enfleshment, fully human, not kind of human, not appearing as human, fully, unapologetically human. Incarnation, crucifixion, nailing that body to a cross. Resurrection, raising that body triumphant from the grave. And then the Spirit of God is poured out upon us and into us, flesh and blood human beings, flesh and blood real human community into which the Spirit of God delights to dwell. The problem is not that we have bodies. The problem is not that we are material. The problem is not that we enjoy food and music and beauty. The problem very often is that we take good things and treat them as if they are God, even though they are not. Paul did not say, John Wesley never said, have no fun. He was not warning people against the evils of normal desires and natural appetites and simple joys. We have to remember, this is one of those moments, we have to remember that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. Its original hearers, its original audience, were not 21st century Americans, but 1st century citizens and residents and subjects of the Roman Empire. They lived in a vastly different world. Uh, There's a great classics scholar named Sarah Rudin who's written a wonderful book called Paul Among the People, and she said that, you know, Paul has this sort of puritanical uh, reputation. Uh, One of her friends refers to him as Grumpy Pants Paul um, and is is seen as just sort of, you know, just being a just a terrible killjoy. But she points out that a lot of the words that he uses for things that we shouldn't practice and shouldn't do and should walk away from, it's really hard to put them into English. So, for example, in another passage, kind of like the one from Ephesians, he talks about carousings, that we cannot participate in carousings. Well, the Greek word uh, for that is the word komos. And a komos was not sort of vague carousing. A komos was a, a, a quite common occurrence. And it's important to stress that it's common. This was an every day or every night or frequently, you know, at least weekly occurrence among Greeks and Romans. And a komos was basically a drunken late night parade. Think of a frat party that spills over into the community. And drunken young men with torches go wandering through city streets looking for anything and anyone that they can use and abuse. People had to hide from a comos. This was, this was abusive. This was violent. And the thing was, they weren't condemned. They weren't looked down upon. They boasted about it. 
because it showed that they were powerful and they were virile. They did what they wanted. They went where they would. And they would brag about what they had done to the people they had, whose, path, whose paths had crossed with theirs. The ancient world was, from our perspective, exceptionally cruel, and unfortunately was routinely cruel. No one would ever think to suggest that they do no harm or even less harm. The good life was all about power and wealth and status and control. Great men did what they wanted, went where they would, took what they desired. That was greatness. I mean, this isn't an exaggeration. This is how they lived their lives. Sarah Rudin describes the ancients as kindergartners with knives. Self-absorbed, self-serving, power, money, status, control. That's the good life. That's what matters. And so when Paul said, you must not walk as you did, you must not live as you did, things which were a routine part of your life then cannot be a part of your life now, not at all, not a little. Compassion was not a Greek or Roman virtue. Humility was despised. Mercy was weakness. It took Jesus for someone to say, do no harm. Love your neighbor. If you wouldn't want it done to you, don't do it to others. Doing no harm is how we put down the knives. A couple years ago, back in 2016, a popular historian named Tom Holland created a little bit of a, a buzz in certain circles. He's an English historian. He wrote an article called Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. It's a really kind of fascinating article. And he talks about growing up, he was raised in the Anglican church. And as a young boy, his first fascination, as is the case for many young boys, his first fascination was dinosaurs. Loved dinosaurs, was obsessed with dinosaurs, right? They were huge, they were scary, they're dead, which makes them safe, but they're fascinating, right? And um, and so then sort of as he grew up, that fascination with dinosaurs some somehow sort of translated into a fascination with the Romans and with the ancient Greeks as well as the ancient Romans. You know, they're big, they're strong, they're powerful, they had these massive empires and all these cool weapons, and it just sort of slid one into the other. He writes that when he was growing up, he realized that he was was actually interested in reading the Bible as a young boy, but as he did so, looking back on it, he realized that he was always identifying with and cheering for the bad guys in the Bible. Like he thought Babylon and Assyria, like these guys are awesome. They've got these massive kingdoms and they conquer all these neighboring peoples. You know, and the Egyptians, they got their pyramids and they've got a big kingdom. And so he was always identifying with the wrong people. And, and sort of through a number of kind of steps and stages, he kind of uh, grew up and away from his faith. But then as he spent more time with the ancients and wrote books about ancient Rome and ancient Greece in particular, they became increasingly strange and horrifying to him. And he gives an example. Several decades before the birth of Jesus, Julius Caesar boasted, boasted about killing a million Gauls and enslaving a million more. 
And he was not villainized for this. He wasn't infamous for this. He was loved for this. When he came home and was celebrated with a triumph in Rome, people had signs celebrating how many people he had killed, his legions had killed, and how many slaves he had made for the glory of Rome. And people looked at him, and they didn't see a beast. They saw a great leader, a great man. Nobody thought there was anything troubling about any of this. And then he just found more and more cruelty kind of woven into Roman society. Their, their economy was based on the systematic exploitation of others, conquest and slavery. That was the, that was the foundation for all of their wealth. And in terms of their sexual economy, the unquestioned assumption, the unquestioned right was for any free male to have any relations he wanted with anyone he wanted at any time. The only exception was don't be with another man's wife. But apart from that, do what you will. He found himself more and more sort of turned off and revolted and horrified by the widespread cruelty that was woven through every level of Roman, Greek and Roman culture and society. And he thought, well, why am I so horrified? Why, why does this seem so deeply wrong to me? Why, why do I believe that every human being is created in the image of God and should be treated with respect and dignity and every human being should be valued? Why was he so repulsed when he read about the ancient Spartans engaging in a a sort of nasty form of eugenics? When a child was born in ancient Sparta, the child would be brought before the community, and if it was sound of body, it would be allowed to live. But if it was deemed unsound, not perfect, a potential drain on community resources, then it was either murdered outright or left to die by exposure. This was how they did business. This is how they conducted their lives. It was into this world that Jesus was born, lived, died, and was raised. It was to this world that the Apostle Paul was sent to proclaim the good news, the gospel about Jesus, and invite people into a whole new way of life in which compassion, not cruelty, is front and center. And John Wesley can faithfully sort of uh, summarize some of the teaching of the New Testament when he said, and we hear, do no harm. Put down the knives. One of the, there's a a letter, an ancient letter that Tom Holland writes about uh, from a centurion, a Roman centurion who's, who's out, you know, sort of, at war, back home to his wife. He's been told that his wife is pregnant, so he writes back to her, and he says, um, well, that's great. If it's a boy child and he's physically healthy, let him live. But if it's a deformed boy or a girl, let it die by exposure. And there's no hint that there's anything morally objectionable about this for most Romans, that was common sense. That was wise. But then into that world, there came a new kind of community. 
that believed a different gospel and followed a different God and worshiped a different Lord. And a funny thing happened. These followers of Jesus started going out to the dumps where unwanted children were left, and they would take them home. Doesn't matter how poor the child, how female the child, how deformed the child. It's a child. Image of God. Loved by God. We can't do harm. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we give thanks for the witness of the Wesleys and before them the witness of Paul to a new kind of community, a new way of life, a life and a community based not on cruelty, not on doing harm, imposing our will, but instead on compassion, on self-giving love. We pray that your Spirit would give us the wisdom, the grace, and the power to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We ask it in his name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We hope that this message will help you have a great week by helping you walk in faith, hope, and love. Looking for more information about Canon? Check us out on the web at canonchurch.org or follow us on Facebook at Canon UMC and Instagram at Canon Church 2424.